reading of God's word. Today's scripture is from Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, well, welcome to Salt Church. My name is Keith, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, so many uh, new faces in here, a lot of people traveling here for spring break. And then we got the OG here. I just want to say uh, welcome. This is literally one of the greatest passages of the scripture. I'm so excited uh, to preach this today. Now, a little history about me. Uh, I used to be a high school teacher. I, I taught history, and I also was a coach. And so like 90% of my illustrations are going to be history and sports, okay? And so I just want to apologize right now. I'm sorry, but also, like, I'm not really sorry, okay? This is how it's going to be, all right? And so uh, I'm going to begin with a story about a young Jewish man uh, who was born in 1904. He was extremely brilliant. He skipped several grades. He went to the most prestigious universities, later worked at them, and worked with people like Albert Einstein, his name was Robert Oppenheimer. There's actually a movie coming, about, uh, coming out this year about him. And he led the Manhattan Project, uh, which he uh, leaded the, led the team to develop the first atomic bomb, and he helped end World War II. And he had this idea that if he could develop this atomic bomb, he could bring justice to the world, and he could prevent any war from ever happening again. And he named the first test bomb site in New Mexico, he named it Trinity. Years later, they said, why did you name the atomic test bomb site Trinity? And he said, well, I named it after a Christian poem by a guy named John Donne. Uh, the poem was called Hymn to God, My God in My Sickness. And the poem is about a man who was unafraid to die because he believed in the resurrection from the dead. On his sickbed, he had hope. And so as Oppenheimer brought death to the world on a scale that the world had never Seen, he realized the only hope for humanity in that moment was a power greater than death, the resurrection from the dead. See, Oppenheimer might have the power to kill, but only Jesus has the power to give life. Oppenheimer later said, he quoted a Hindu text, he said this, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And Oppenheimer became ashamed of what he had done. Uh, he actually tried to stop the United States from developing the hydrogen bomb, which would be a more powerful weapon. Now, why do I begin with this story? Well, because this morning we're going to see Paul the Apostle, like Oppenheimer, introduces a new power to the world. But unlike the power of the atomic bomb that can destroy this world, Paul introduces a power that can save the world. I'm talking about the power of the gospel. And unlike Oppenheimer, who became extremely ashamed of his work on the Manhattan Project and tried to stop his research from going forth, we're going to see today that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't try to stop the power from spreading, but he eagerly spreads the message of the gospel because it's the power that brings salvation. And so my main point today is there are many powers in the world, but there's really only one power that gives us salvation. I'm going to have three points today. First, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Second, receive the gospel. Don't try to achieve it. And then believe in a righteousness that doesn't fade. Uh, but before we jump in, 
to the text. I would love if you would join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your timeless word. We thank you that you have revealed the gospel to us. And Lord, that we believe it. We receive it by faith and it makes us righteous and it forgives us of sin. And we don't have to fear death because we know when we have faith in you, Christ, we have a resurrection from the dead. And Lord, even now, we get to experience that resurrection power, that new life where you're constantly delivering us from the power of sin and darkness. I pray you bless our time this morning. Lord, that we would have ears to hear, that our hearts would be open, we could be encouraged, we could be strengthened, that we could leave this place filled with your spirit, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. And like Paul, we would eagerly spread this message of salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so first point, don't be ashamed of the gospel. We're going to look at the first part of uh, Romans 1 verse 16, and it says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why does Paul say this? When you say you're not ashamed of something, it usually means that there are a whole bunch of people who are ashamed, right? It would kind of be like if I said, man, that kid, he's unashamed to wear pajamas to class, right? You guys all see that student, right? Like he's unashamed. Like most people are ashamed to wear their pajamas to class, uh, but that guy's not, right? He's unashamed. I remember asking a friend over in Fort Collins, and I was like, yeah, what school did you end up going to in college in Nebraska? And I could tell she was ashamed because immediately she looked down. She was like, yeah, I went to the school called Wayne State College. And I was like, hey, you don't need to be ashamed. That's all right. And she started to defend herself. She's like, I wouldn't have gone there, you know, but I had a scholarship. And I was like, don't be ashamed like me and Todd and Rachel and Zach and Leah. Like we went to the University of Wyoming, right? But we are unashamed, all right? And see, depending on what culture you live in, there will be a temptation to be ashamed of things like where you go to school, how you dress, where you come from. And it's the same when it comes to the gospel. Many are going to see this gospel message as foolish and offensive. And so the gospel is going to offend every culture in the world differently. Uh, In this context, the gospel offended the Jews in Rome. Now, the Jews were all in Israel at one time, but through this diaspora, they were all exiled throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, They think there are around 50,000 Jews that lived in Rome, and they had been practicing the law for hundreds of years. And Christians came along and said, hey, actually, it's not your obedience to the law that makes you right with God. It's faith in Jesus. And they were like, what? You're telling me all my traditions and family customs are wrong? And it was extremely offensive to the Jews in Rome. But the gospel also offended the Romans because it, because it gave hope to the suffering. It gave hope to women. It gave an identity to slaves and the disabled. And it called these people royalty. So it offended those people in power in Rome. And so even today, here in Colorado, the gospel still offends. And there's a temptation to be ashamed. Um, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who aren't offended by me. And that's what we pray for, a harvest where people are not offended by the gospel. And so here's two cultures in the world that can be offended and ashamed of the gospel today. Now, the Bible was written in the Eastern world and the Middle East and places like China and Japan. Family is king. But the gospel comes along and says, your first and primary allegiance needs to be to me. And you should be so allegiant to me as your king that it looks like you hate your family. Do you think that's going to be popular in the Eastern world? 
No, parents in the Eastern world want a family legacy. They want their kids to succeed and they want them to be well-respected by society. And when Christianity comes in, you might not get that. Now we live in the Western world, places like Europe and North America. What's king here? Individual self and education. And the gospel comes along and says, hey, you need to love God and you need to love the church more than your career. And that's offensive here, right? I remember hearing the story of these two girls They went to a prestigious university. They got nursing degrees and uh, they came to faith in Christ in college though. They went from like a a lukewarm uh, cultural Christianity and the spirit just lit a flame in their heart and they wanted to fulfill the great commission. And so when they finished school, they decided to go to Africa and pour out their lives for the sake of the gospel. And I love what, what happened. It just showed how culturally we are off. Their parents said, hey, don't waste your life. Like, we're Christians too, we get it, you love God, whatever, but why would you ever go to Africa? Don't do that, please. It was extremely offensive to their parents that there was a form of Christianity that put the Great Commission over their career. And so why wasn't Paul ashamed? Why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel? First, we're not ashamed because the gospel means we have God's approval. And God's approval is far greater than the praise of man. I love what pastor and author David Platt said. He said, trying to please man, it's impossible. Like you literally can't do it because people are always changing. Even in our society, what was popular 20 years ago is no longer popular today. People can believe one thing and the very next day, they change their mind. Think about fashion. Like, I love fashion, but it's always changing, right? And when you're 35, you just, you just give up. You're like, I can't ever look cool, right? Like, it's just changing all the time. And if you want to impress people, you always have to change. And so it's exhausting. You can lose the praise of man so easily, and you become a slave to it. But in the gospel, we get the approval of God, and that doesn't change because it rests on what Jesus Christ has done for us, and not our performance. Uh, Another reason why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel is because short-term pain leads to long-term gains. Now look, you might get mocked for believing in Jesus. You might lose your job. You might be tempted to deny Christ for worldly comfort. But we shouldn't because we know we win in the end. Like literally, we know how it's going to end, right? Isn't that good news? Uh, An illustration to show how this encourages us today. Uh, First of all, I just have to share this confession. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, all right? Uh, Now, when you tell people you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, it's kind of like telling someone in in Iran that you're a Jew. Like, people immediately just hate you, all right? Well, don't hate me. It's literally how I was raised, okay? And in Dallas Cowboy history, there's a quarterback by the name of Roger Staubach. And he is known for being the most comeback fourth quarter quarterback in all of NFL history. More fourth quarter comebacks than any quarterback ever. And there's a story of this fan. He was a fan like myself, and he would get extremely anxious watching the Dallas Cowboys, right? They'd be down 10 points in the fourth quarter, and he'd be pacing back and forth, just sweating and nervous, not even fun to be around, right? Like, have you guys ever watched Sawyer watch the Chiefs? Like, he's an anxious mess, like not even fun to be around, right? But by God's grace... This guy was in the military, and he was shipped overseas to Japan, and they had this thing called the Armed Services Network, so he would always get the game a day later. So he could look on the news, and he could see who won the game, 
And he would see the score. Wow, Cowboys 31, Eagles 24. They win. This is amazing. So then when he would go and watch the game in the fourth quarter, do you think he was anxious? He wasn't anxious because he knew who was going to win at the end. He was like, Roger is the comeback king. I'm so excited to see how he's going to turn this thing around. And he went from anxiety to joy to see what was going to happen. And that's why we're not ashamed of the gospel, church. Jesus is the comeback king. It might look like your life is falling apart. It might look like America is going down the toilet. But you know who wins in the end? Jesus. He's literally going to come back and establish his kingdom. This is such good news, church, that we win in the end. So this short-term pain always leads to long-term gain. We don't need to be ashamed. And last, we're not ashamed of the gospel. Like we sang, the gospel is beautiful. We don't share the gospel because we have to, but because we want to. I love when my friends text me like a song that they really love. Like they found a song so beautiful that they had to share it with me. And I love when my friends do that. I'm like, awesome, man, thanks for sharing. I might listen to it, right? You might listen to it. You probably don't like it, but they loved it, right? That's usually what happens. Um, But the reality is, think about it like this. That's why we love social media, I think. You're up on that high mountain or you're skiing and you see the beauty of creation. And to complete your joy, what do you have to do? You need to share it with the world, right? Like this was so beautiful, I need to share it with the world. It's one of the good reasons why we love social media. Think about it like this. Imagine you come across the most beautiful piece of art. Maybe it was by Leonardo or Michelangelo and it was beautiful. Maybe you come across uh, some of Mozart's music and it's never been shared. It would literally be criminal to hide that beauty. And similarly, we can't hide the beauty of the gospel. We aren't ashamed of the gospel. We're eager. And this is what fundamentally reverses our attitude to sharing the gospel. See, the opposite of being ashamed is not willingness. It's eagerness. We want people to see the beauty of the gospel. So the big temptation that we're going to face in our culture is this. You can avoid feelings of shame by altering the gospel message to make it popular or inoffensive, right? I've seen churches do this all the time. But as soon as we do this, church, the gospel loses all of its power. It ceases to be the gospel. It's like taking the gunpowder out of a bullet and then going to war and hoping you will win. There's not a chance you will win at life if you try to change the Bible and make it less offensive. In fact, I've seen people who do try to change the Bible to be not offensive, and it shipwrecks their life. It destroys their church. I just met with a church that completely changed their theology, and it's not even Christian anymore. And when you look at the families in this church, they're dying. Their marriages are falling apart. Their kids have no sense of identity, and it's so depressing. And it's all because they swayed from the Bible because they didn't want to offend anybody. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the word of God, it's like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. So don't apologize for what's written in here. You don't have to defend it. Just let it out. God's truth is the ultimate power in the world. And the other thing, we are going to face feelings of shame with the direction that our culture is going. You are going to feel shame at times for being a Christian. So what do you do? You go to your brothers and sisters. You go to community so they can rescue you from the feelings of shame to keep you centered on the word of God. And we see in the book of Acts, whenever the apostles were persecuted, they didn't go into isolation. 
They didn't feel ashamed. They actually ran to their brothers and sisters, and it says they celebrated that they were persecuted for the name of Jesus. So what could have been a shameful experience led to celebration because they were in community. And so if you think you can do this Christian life on your own in America, you're wrong. Shame will come, you'll run, you'll isolate, you can't handle it. We were made for community. So when shame comes, go to community. When we're in community, we can remind each other of the beauty of the gospel, that our life is eternally secure, that we win in the end, and we can remind each other that God's approval is infinitely greater than the approval of man. And last, we're not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, because it's the power of the gospel, which leads to my second point. Receive the gospel. Don't achieve it. Let's look at the second part of verse 16. It says this. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of salvation. You guys, I love spicy food. Uh, can I see a show of hands if you love spicy food in here? All right, we got, some, we got some lovers of spicy food. Well, my wife knows I like spicy food. And so for Christmas, she actually got me like 10 different kinds of hot sauces. But she also knows that there's power in a pepper. So she also got me flush, uh, let's see, what are they called? They were like soothing, flushable wet wipes, all right? Um, <laughs> Because she knows there's power in the gospel. And uh, as, as I was doing research on this, I came across this guy named Theodoret. He's a Syrian bishop in the 5th century, and he likened the gospel to a pepper. He said, a pepper outwardly seems to be cold, but the person who crunches it between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. You can experience that fire in a couple different ways, all right? <laughs> Um, thankfully I got a good wife, but in the same way he goes on and he says, the gospel at first appears to be just an interesting theory or philosophy. This old Jewish carpenter who died for our sins claims to be God. What's that about? But when we take it in personally, we experience the full power of the gospel. That's like a burning fire that changes everything in our life. I want you guys to think about the power of adoption. Think about a little baby who gets adopted. Did the baby who was adopted have the power to achieve his adoption through his effort? No. He simply received it. All he did was look cute. See, adoption happened to the child, and adoption happened to the Christian because a parent took hold of us. It was an outside power greater than us that saved us. And this is why our salvation is determined by God's power, and not our power. And this is why Christian salvation is not just conversion. It's so much more. It's an assurance. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. You can't lose it because it's held by God's power and not your own. And so we're going to look at this word salvation that Paul brings up. And this is my definition. It's the infinite power of God removing the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin in your life through the work of Jesus Christ. So think about it like this. You're saved past tense. You're being saved day by day, present tense. And you will be saved future tense from sin and death. So let's look at the first part. First, salvation removes 
the penalty of sin. We are saved from our sinful past. Uh, my story, my senior year of college, I came to faith and I lived a reckless sin, sinful lifestyle and I wasn't even convicted of my sin until somebody started preaching the Bible to me and I saw that my sins were sinned uh, against God and guys, I was crushed by the weight of my sin. If I could describe it, I remember uh, doing a lot of concrete work in the summers in high school and college and it was like falling into a, a pool of concrete, being crushed and I couldn't get out. That's literally what it felt like when I was convicted of my sin. And all I could do was cry out to Jesus. And I couldn't believe he was so gracious to forgive me. And I'll never forget when I got baptized my senior year, right before I went down into the water, I just prayed the simple prayer. God, if you'll really forgive me and you won't hold any of my sins against me, Lord, that sounds way too good to be true. I can't believe you would love me that much. If you will really forgive me of all my sins, I'm yours forever. And I went down into the water and I came up and I was saved. Baptism didn't save me, but my faith in Christ saved me. And I'm here to say this. The minute you become a Christian, the penalty of sin is once and for all reversed and removed from your life. I'm past tense saved. So you can look at a Christian and say, you're saved. You're past tense saved. Second, salvation is being rescued from the power of sin. We're being saved day by day. This is present tense salvation. You woke up this morning and you're being saved as a Christian. And this is different in everyone everyone's Christian walk. If God ceased to start saving you day by day, the power of sin and the devil would completely destroy your life. But God gives you this new power, his power over sin in your life. And this looks different in every Christian's life. For some, the moment they become a Christian, God breaks the power of sin and a certain particular sin or area of their life. For some, it takes years to bring freedom to an area of their life. But the reality is this, every day, Sin loses more and more of its power as we experience the power of the gospel. We're saved day by day. Uh, one of the ways I know this is true, when I look at my first year of marriage, there was still a lot of sin in my life that had significant power in my life. And now I've been married almost nine years, and we're like a completely different couple because God has continually removed the power of sin in our lives over the last nine years. Praise God that God breaks the power of sin in our life. And third, salvation will someday save us from the presence of sin. This is such good news that I don't even know what life will be like without the presence of sin. What your relationships will look like, what work will look like, what community will look like. Without the presence of sin, there will be no evil. And this is what we will be having someday. So this is a future tense salvation. What are we saved from? This isn't a popular message in church, but Paul talks about it a lot. The next few weeks, we're going to talk about it a lot because it comes up as we're going to talk about judgment and the wrath of God. And here's the reality, church. Jesus is going to return. He is going to judge the nations. He's going to gather all peoples from all time, and he's going to judge them according to his law. He will judge the world in justice, and he's going to get rid of all evil. And do you know how we escape this judgment? We believe in Jesus' saving work. Christ will save us from judgment day. God will look at us as holy, not as sinful, because we put our faith in him. And so salvation is past, present, and future. The salvation is so great, it creates righteousness and justice in our lives. Let's look at uh, the third point. Let's look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, 
the righteous shall live by faith. I love what pastor and author Tim Keller said about this text. He said, what we think about God and what we think about ourselves is the most important thing we do in our life. If we get this wrong, a wrong view of God and a wrong view of ourselves, we can have all kinds of excessive anxiety and worry and fear and discouragement in life. Think about it. If I don't think God is powerful, if I don't think God is loving, if I don't think God is my provider, I'm going to be a mess and I'm not going to have a problem stealing from other people. God doesn't provide. I better take matters into my own hands. If I don't believe God made other people valuable, I'm not going to love or honor other people. I'm going to use them for self-gain. If I don't believe Jesus is the living water and the only one who can satisfy my soul, I'm going to look to all the pleasures of the world to try to find satisfaction. If I don't believe God will bring justice to the world in the end and judge all the nations, I'm not going to forgive people, right? I'm going to get bitter. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get vengeful. And I'm always going to take matters into my own hand. But I believe that God is the judge. I can let God deal with it. I can trust him and I can forgive. If I don't believe Jesus is in control of my future and he's sovereign, I'm going to be crushed by worry. So Paul right here is saying this. First, we must believe God is righteous. He is good. We naturally aren't, but he is. But he is the one who makes us righteous, not us. He is the one that makes us good. And the Greek word for righteousness is also being justified. It's being right. It's that justice is served. You are righteous and you are just. Notice the text says righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. And like I said earlier, at this time in Judaism, like all other world religions, they say, if you want to be good, if you want to be right with God, you need to be a really good person and you need to obey the law. I have another Charles Spurgeon quote, and he said this, the general religion of mankind is due, but the religion of the Christian is done. And did you guys know that it was this verse that sparked the Protestant Reformation and rescued Christianity from dry, dead religion? It's called the Martin Luther Tower Story. And uh, Martin Luther was a zealous priest. He did everything right. He prayed hours a day. Can you guys imagine eight hours of confession a day? That's what he believed he needed to do to be forgiven by God. He took a vow of celibacy because he believed if he was single, he could be closer to God and God would be pleased with him. And he tried so hard, but all it did was make him cold and mean. And as he read through the book of Romans, he got to this verse that we're reading today. And he was completely undone. And he realized for the first time that all of his hard work, everything he had ever done was a complete waste and that he could never please God according to his own works. I'm going to read some of his diary. He said this, But I, the blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner and I had an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure of God was appeased by all of my good works. And so I constantly badgered St. Paul about this spot in Romans 1. And I anxiously wanted to know what Paul meant. And so I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. And as it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again. 
I had this breakthrough. And I entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. And so he began to radically change the church. He said, you don't have to be celibate to be close with God. He's actually said to nuns, you should get married and have sex and have kids. It's an amazing gift from God. It doesn't separate you from God. He said, you don't have to be a priest or a monk and live in a monastery to please God. You have to believe. You don't have to give money for God to love you. No, you have to believe. It's not your righteous words. It's not your righteous actions. You need to believe and live by faith. And so here at Salt Church, it's faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And when we get that, the power of the gospel will be unleashed in your life and in this world. And the reality is here today, it's not just religious people who pursue righteousness. In our culture, the word righteousness means value or meaning or purpose. And you you guys could put it like this. Everyone is pursuing righteousness or value. Think about it like this. Because of sin, we all know something's wrong with us. So we're all trying to enhance our identity by what we do. We try to create a righteousness of our own. But like Martin Luther, it will never be enough to find satisfaction or please God. Interestingly, last week, the Wall Street Journal had an article that was called this. Is this it? When success isn't satisfying. And this lady, Rachel Feinzig, she's a secular author, and she, she looked at this Harvard study that says people who work really, really hard for that dream job, they work really, really hard for that degree, or they finally get that promotion, and they finally move to that city. And when they get it, these people are totally shocked because they aren't satisfied. In fact, now they're depressed because the thing that they hoped would make them happy let them down. Why is this? Because any righteousness apart from Christ can't save us and it can't satisfy us. So Paul reveals there's two kinds of righteousness in the world. A worldly righteousness that we earn that always is going to blow away and a righteousness we receive by faith that is divine and eternal. Uh, One of the ways uh, this works out, just to give you a clear illustration, uh, I was talking to one of the City Light pastors in Lincoln. His name's Nate. He was a wrestler at Penn State. And his girlfriend was on the track and field team. They were both amazing athletes. And what was interesting, they're dating and they both got injured at the same time. Now, Nate, he was grounded in Christ. His righteousness was in Jesus, not in his athletic performance. And so when his injury came, like he was still bummed, right? But he didn't go to a bad place. He didn't get depressed. He didn't get discouraged. He still had a ton of joy. But his girlfriend, on the other hand, she was a mess because her righteousness was her performance in sports. But she looked at her boyfriend and said, you have something I don't have. What is it? And he said, my righteousness is in Christ alone, by faith alone and grace alone. And I can have joy because I don't even deserve to be alive. And God loves me. And it radically changed her relationship with the Lord when, he saw, when she saw his righteousness that came by faith. And so if you're here today, maybe you believe in God but your righteousness is your money. Maybe you lose money, something breaks down, and your identity, your righteousness just blows away, and you're depressed, you're no fun to be around, and you go to a bad place. It can happen. Maybe your righteousness is your status, or success, or beauty. And when these things fade, maybe you gain weight, have a bad hair day, maybe you fail at something, you just feel crushed. You feel depressed. Why? 
worldly righteousness will always blow away. And so the good news of the gospel is there is a greater righteousness for you. It's available to you. Christ purchased it. He shed his blood to buy this and secure this righteousness for you. And it won't blow away when things get tough. And it's not dependent on how good you are or your life circumstances. It's a new value. It's a stamp of approval given to you that can't be taken away. It's good news for all. For all the fatherless looking for approval, to all the women who have never heard they're beautiful, to the outcasts who don't have community, to the religious Pharisees who are empty on the inside, to those who feel like failures who are under the weight of shame. Jesus says, put your faith in me. I'll give you something better. I will make you a righteous child of God. Now, why is this righteousness received by faith and not good works? Because faith depends on Christ's work and power, not ours. So who gets to boast? Me for being awesome or God? God gets to boast. It's by faith. Can anyone believe the gospel? Yes. In religion, it's the elite, the wealthy, the powerful, the privileged who can be good and right. But by faith, anyone can believe. Rich, poor, black, white, the good, the bad. It's good news for all. I like to think of grace and righteousness like this giant water tower. It's unlimited. It's like an ocean of grace, but nobody can climb up there and get it. But faith is like this pipe that comes down from the water tower to a drinking fountain. And all we need to do is come to it and drink. It's not a good work. Literally, all we do is receive it. And when we take it in, it changes us where we want to give up everything and live for Christ. And so what you believe about God and yourself will steer your destiny. And one question, this is my final application, that is telling if you understand this, is simply this. A lot of people might ask you or me, are you a Christian? And you know what's sad is a lot of times people say, you know, I think so. Or I'm trying. I go to church. I'm in a small group. I'm in a Bible study. You know, I pray sometimes. I'm trying. But they don't get it. It's not trying that saves you. It's faith that saves you. Have you received this new identity that's free? This righteousness from Christ? Can you confidently come before God? Like Drake said, because he sees you are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. You're holy, you're blameless, you're sinless, you're pure. Do you believe God loves you that much? Do you believe you are righteous? And this is why Paul says, this is basically his thesis of the whole letter. If you get this, if you believe this, it will change you forever. If I believe I'm loved, I really believe it, I'm going to love other people. If I know I'm righteous and I'm valuable and I have meaning and purpose, I don't have to be a slave to success or sin. If I know we win in the end, I don't care if somebody is offended by the gospel. God holds my future. I don't have to worry. If I know I'm saved and that God's not going to punish me for my sins, I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have gratitude. I'm going to realize each day can be the best day of my life because I don't even deserve it. And I'm thankful. That's the power of belief. And when you get a whole bunch of people together who believe this and love each other, you know what happens? The church begins to release the power of the gospel and lives are changed. 
when the Christian church blew up in Rome, the most powerful empire in all of history, the gospel cut through it like a hot knife through butter, and everyone began to experience that change. Hospitals were built, orphanages were created, the disabled were cared for, women had value for the first time. And I believe God wants to do the same thing here in Greeley and at UNC. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the power of the gospel. I want to pray for everyone in here, Lord. Maybe, maybe we don't really believe this. We don't believe we're forgiven. We don't believe we're righteous. And we feel ashamed. We feel like failures. We feel like we're not good enough for you, Jesus. We feel like we know we should share the gospel, but we don't want to because we're ashamed. And God, I thank you that you're gracious. That it's not up to us. It's about what you did for us, Jesus. And when we meditate on that, when we know that, and we see how beautiful it is, it changes our hearts, God. And so I pray that all of us in here can confidently say, I'm righteous. I'm a righteous son of God, or I'm a righteous daughter of the King. Jesus, you have made me pure. You've given me value. And now, Lord, would you change our hearts that we could live for you, that we could eagerly share the gospel with our neighbors, our coworkers, those who are dying under the weight of a worldly righteousness that doesn't satisfy, that can't sustain them, that can't bless their marriage, that can't help their family, that doesn't save them from a judgment day. God, that we could deliver the beautiful news of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.